Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We have the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity, because movement is part of what makes your life complete. We interview people in the movement field who have a variety of experiences, educations, and professional titles. At the end of the day, we all want to move more, and we want our clients, athletes, and patients to move more, move better, and move more efficiently. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They are well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise professions. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge and information to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people and not working on their social media presence. Before we get to the interview, a quick request. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share the podcast with your friends or anyone who understands that movement is a lifestyle. We appreciate it and our guests appreciate it too. Welcome back to another episode of the Moving to Live podcast. We promote the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. And what we like to do is interview people across the movement spectrum who have interesting stories to tell, whether they're in the U.S. or in other places. Today's guest, I've been trying to get an interview for probably six or seven months, but that nasty COVID thing interfered with it. And then my life interfered with it with various responsibilities for work. We've interviewed his wife in the past, Kate Baldwin, who is a physiotherapist and an accomplished Ironman triathlete. Today, we are with her husband, Nick Baldwin, who is a triathlete and personal trainer all the way from Australia. Nick, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Yeah, pleasure, Ben. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Appreciate it. One of the most interesting things to me when I interview people is my question I ask them first, and I ask them to tell me and the listeners What's your elevator spiel? You get in the elevator, you're wearing your t-shirt with your business uh, endurance movement, or maybe you're wheeling your bike and somebody says, what do you do? What do you tell them? Yeah, it's an interesting question. For, for many, many years, my stock response to that was, oh, I'm a triathlete. And um, inevitably, that sparks up a little bit of conversation about swim, bike, run. Um, these days, it's a little bit different. I've, I've stepped away from that over the last few years. And um, my response to that is, uh, well, these days I'm working with my wife. We have a small physiotherapy business specializing in strength and conditioning here in Perth, Western Australia. And um, we still get the opportunity to work very closely with athletes and obviously specifically endurance athletes. Um, and that's something that that's really, like, really rewarding. Um, I think especially as for me personally, having had that background as an athlete to continue to be surrounded um, by others in a sport that I love and have uh, have enjoyed participating in for so long is is um, is really rewarding and something that I really enjoy. And I don't know, some of the listeners will know this, some won't. Probably when you look at a variety of sports, probably the hardest physiologically and psychologically, I don't think anybody would disagree with something like Tour de France cycling where they're doing three weeks of events. But I think many people forget about the Ironman distance triathletes or tri- and triathlons, which you've done. And your story is pretty interesting because I've got the advantage of, of reading your bio. You're actually from Britain. So growing up, were you in the triathlon field, something where mom and dad pushed you into triathlons or what was your movement story growing up in uh, England? Yeah, yeah, no, um, quite the opposite, actually. I um, had the opportunity whilst growing up to be very flexible, I suppose, in, in what I did in, in my free time. And um, sport was something I really enjoyed as a youngster and took part in as many of the team sports at school as I as I had the opportunity to do. And I would never excelled in any of them, to be honest. I, I Whilst I really enjoyed them and I got a lot out of each of the sports I did, I never 
was able to reach a level where there was any opportunity or possibility of taking it a little bit further than just representing the school team. Um, so sport, whilst something being something I loved, wasn't something that I ever really believed would be uh, something I could pursue as a career in the future. And um, it was really just by chance that I stumbled across triathlon. I was uh, preparing for my first year of university. So I was, I think, 18 at the time. And I saw a highlights package of Ironman Lanzarote, which is well known as one of the hardest of the Ironmans out there. And I hadn't even heard of triathlon at the time, to be honest. And I remember seeing the highlights package and just being in awe of what what I was watching and not comprehending the distances and how anybody could put that together. And and that was it. They kind of piqued my interest in triathlon. And the the next year I did my first race and it was just a very short distance race, um, one of the local events um, where I was living in the UK at the time. And um, I think I was 18 then. And um, that really was the start of my journey. Um, I, I continued through university to just partake in some of the local events. And um, when I graduated university, I then really wanted to try and give myself the opportunity to persevere with the sport. And um, to be honest, a, a big motivation of mine was to try and avoid a typical nine to five and, and an office job. I Growing up, I, I never always knew what it was I wanted to do, but I was quite sure that I didn't want to to be kind of office based, to be honest. And um, so I had a, I had a pretty strong motivation to try and <laughs> to try and excel at triathlon to uh, to give myself the opportunity to travel and to explore different things and opportunities. And um, I undertook a personal training course upon finishing university, which was quite quite different to my course that I studied. I did business economics and French, and and whilst that was very very fulfilling and and probably something that um, that my family thought was was going to earn me in, in a direction that would set me up well down the line, it wasn't where my true passion lied. And um, and so I thought, well, I'll get into something that will keep me <clears throat> within the sporting field. And um, personal training also gave me the flexibility to then increase my training load. And um, obviously that then allows you to improve your your fitness levels. And over time, I was able to become a little bit more competitive within the amateur fields and um, just slowly progress from there. And I think what's interesting is many people don't realize if you look at the people who tend to excel at triathlon, Many of them start at a very young age and sw as swimmers and then either find triathlon or realize maybe they don't quite have that top-end speed to be elite as a swimmer. What was your swimming background like when you discovered triathlon at 18? Because usually that's the downfall for people who don't start swimming with, from a very young age. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I was quite lucky that I, as well as being being British, as you can no doubt tell from my accent, um, I also have uh, Seychelles heritage as well. So my mother's from from the Seychelles. So growing up, we we toed and froed from the UK and Seychelles a fair bit. And um, obviously, living in Seychelles, tropical island by the beach, you know, we spend a lot of time in the water. So swimming was always something I'd done as a youngster, but not again at a competitive level. Um, I certainly would never go as far as to say as I was an accomplished swimmer when I when I started triathlon training. Um, I wish I was because it might have made <laughs> made my life a lot easier for many years. But, but it was certainly an aspect that I had to really uh, really work hard on to to improve uh, because. You know, like you said, to to try and be competitive now, the swim is such an important component. Whilst it represents a small percentage of the race, it really does set set up end of of amateur racing or amongst their professional ranks. The the tactical element of racing is is absolutely fundamental. So you know, setting yourself up with with a decent swim at the very least is something that's become more and more important over the years. And 
and as you you no doubt uh, you know realize and know from following the sport over the last decade plus the, the sport's moved on and the level that athletes are at now is is far beyond what it was you know even even five years ago the the, the competitiveness of of the sport and the depth of the competition is so much better than than it was uh, when i first started and what was it when you started doing it what was it a two-part question first of all the realization hey maybe i can do a little bit more than the weekend warrior the amateur maybe i can make a little money from prize money and sponsors and then how did you arrive at or did you specialize at a certain distance were you more a sprint and olympic distance or more long distance ultra distance yeah um well the second part to that i i'd certainly gravitated towards the longer distance uh, naturally i would say i did my first half ironman when I was, I think it was in my in that first season, so just before I turned nineteen, and and just absolutely fell in love with it. It was to me, it was beyond any enjoyment I'd uh, been able to derive from many of the shorter distance races. Um, again, not because I was any better at it, but I just found the, I think I found the mental component and the mental challenge, an aspect that I really enjoyed, and I found that that wasn't quite the same at the shorter distances. Not to take anything away from from how hard it is to compete at those, but I found that additional mental component a real interesting part of the race. And you realize how, whilst it's still a physical event, it's so much more than just your body that that takes you across the line. You know, you've got to be so strong and resilient mentally to be able to race for, well, for me at the time when I did my first time half Ironman, it was quite long. <laughs> it was still well over six hours. Um, it was, yeah, something that I, I just um, absolutely, um, absolutely loved. And um, I certainly then from then on, gave my focus and attention to the longer distances and to to the half Ironman and um, that really then for me piqued my desire to 100% commit to doing a full distance race uh, which I did in in 20 2008 actually now was my was my first one and so I was 19 and and much the same as my first experience with the half completed my first full and just uh, unbelievably positive experience whilst it was it's so so challenging obviously it was the most rewarding event and the most rewarding day of racing that i'd ever had so um, again that was my my moment where i just said this, this is where i see myself racing and giving my attention and that was certainly for me the start of that that real strong commitment and desire to give everything that i had to to trying to be the best that i could in the sport and and to be honest the my desire to excel academically probably uh, coincided uh, with me taking up triathlon in that I probably gave a little less attention to my studies whilst I was at uni and a little more attention to uh, to training and racing. And obviously that probably wasn't the right way around to go. But um, that was just a reflection of where my passion lied at the time. And, um, you know, I suppose in hindsight, thankfully, I was able to, <laughs> to um, pursue a career and I managed to race professionally for, for near on 10 years which um which was really really enjoyable and really special but um I certainly wouldn't say it was an, an easy thing to to accomplish and um I think I, I never got to a level professionally where you know you're regarded as one of the the top athletes or people look at you and um you know are you know chasing you for your autograph and things like that so I was very much I suppose for the majority of the time a, a mid-pack professional but there were certainly races where I I felt that I, I could turn up to and, and be competitive, and um, it, yeah, it was a wonderful uh, wonderful part of my life that I look back on really fondly. I'm curious. I've got a good friend who said nobody wants to hear about a race report unless something went wrong, <laughs> and you know you can get on social media and read about people doing races. Looking back, 
maybe when you started and you did your first half Ironman and your first Ironman, is there one or two things that stick out now where you're going, boy, I was really an idiot. Why did I do that? Or why didn't I, why didn't I know better? Oh yeah. There's probably a handful of things I could think of. Um, well, one of the, one of the first things that springs to mind is for, for the whole first season that I raced, I, I didn't really have any, any close, close friends or even like acquaintances who had, who had done triathlon and um, maybe just, just one or two, but, um, no one locally to me that I would, I would speak with often. And for my entire first season of training and racing, which included my first half Ironman, uh, I didn't own a track pump. And I didn't understand anything about tire pressure or the importance of actually having a reasonable amount of pressure in your tires. And so I spent the first year of uh, of training and racing just pumping up my tires with a small hand pump, you know, probably just a, a pocket-sized one. And in hindsight, probably had about 30 PSI in my tires all year. Uh, so not probably the best uh, the best way to go uh, training and racing. But uh, I suppose these are the little things that you you just don't know about early on unless you, you know, are fully kind of submerged in a sport or unless you have people close to you that you can, um, you know, get all their input and advice from and making mistakes along the way is, I guess, part and parcel of anything really, you know, not just in sport, but in other aspects of life. And um, I certainly made, made a, you know, a number of uh, probably rookie errors early on for, you know, for no other reason than I just didn't know any better. Um, and then obviously as time goes on, you realize in how, um, how some, how some of those were quite ridiculous. And what was the impetus to go from England to uh, Australia? Yeah, so that was so my first uh, the first time I came over to Australia for a longer period of time was at the back end of 2014. And I was actually it was a European summer. I was in, I think, the UK at the time. And I was um, I was trying to consider where my best options were to give myself a, a winter of swim focus. And what I came to the conclusion was that I had two good options. And one of my options would be to come to Perth, or one of my other options would be to go stateside to the US. So after considering both options, I decided upon Perth because I actually had a friend who lived here and he said, hey, come on over for a couple of months, you can stay with me. And um, so I, I did exactly that. I came and uh, joined a swim uh, a swim coach and, and his group of athletes that were was training here at the time. Um, we had some really good athletes who joined us that, uh, that summer. We had um, Rachel Joyce, who's a British long distance athlete, extremely, extremely successful. Uh, Emma Pallant, who's still racing again, you know, having great success at the 70.3 distance. And um, it was it was just a great experience to be able to surround myself with not just better athletes and better swimmers, but also be in an environment where Perth couldn't you couldn't get a better place to swim. So um, compared to being uh, being in the UK over winter, I definitely kind of made a good decision to come here. And what was the decision to stay? Uh, as with many stories, the the girl, I suppose. So um, I met my wife, Kate, um, towards the back end of that trip. It was actually, I think it was just a week or so before I was due to leave. And um, I was friends with her her sister and her sister's husband, actually. And funnily enough, they invited me over to, to their house for a barbecue. They're having some friends over and some family. And that's when I met Kate for the first time. And we just got on really well, obviously, and uh, kept in touch. And it wasn't too long before before I came back. Um, side note to that, there's there's a bit of a, a funny component to the story. So um, this was the December 2014 that Kate and I met. And funnily enough, I'd actually been in Western Australia three years earlier in um, December 2011 for Ironman Western Australia. 
And I was actually in the 18 to 24 age group at the time. And I was racing against Andy and Andy was Kate's sister's husband. So Kate and her sister were down spectating the race, uh, watching me compete against Andy. But all the while, obviously not really knowing who I was at the time. And uh, it wasn't until three years later that Kate and I met. So uh, we obviously weren't destined to meet then in 2011. But when we did in 2014, uh, thankfully, things went really well. And you are involved with your wife in a business that works with endurance athletes. And I think what is so unique about it, if you look at the broad spectrum of amateur athletes and even many professional athletes, you emphasize resistance training. And I yeah, think that's, yes. that's something that's vastly underrated, obviously. Was this something that you got into while you were racing professionally before you moved to Australia? Or was this something that your wife, Kate, said, hey, this might help your racing and kind of the light bulb went on when you started to see a little more success? Yeah, I definitely got the nudge from Kate to uh, to be a bit more diligent with my strength training. To be honest, I was uh, I was very very unfamiliar with the best way of incorporating strength training uh, before meeting Kate and before um, implementing some of the um, you know the research that that she has. Um, and and that's probably not you know not un unlike many of the athletes in the endurance field. You know, even if you have good intentions and you hear and read about strength training being positive. There is a lot of misinformation out there and um, sometimes people apply principles that might be either outdated or, or you know, scientifically unwarranted. Um, and it's it's not always easy to to kind of cut through that. And um, thankfully, we, you know, have the opportunity to, to, as I said, to work with endurance athletes on a daily basis. And um, I think slowly over time, some of the, you know, the current research is coming through and you see more and more athletes incorporating, you know, good scientific principles behind their strength training um you know for endurance athletes specifically because you know it is very different to um to, you know to how other athletes from you know other sports will train and um and, and it's essential to you know get the very most of your strength training as an endurance athlete you don't want to be wasting your time strength training but doing the wrong type of strength training that isn't going to help complement your sport because ultimately we find that most of the people we work with that you know they're in the gym and they're doing their strength training not necessarily because they love it but because they recognize it's going to improve their um, level of competition in what they do love which is their chosen sport and so you want to make sure everyone's optimizing and maximizing their training um and um yeah i'm very yeah very very lucky to obviously work closely with kate and um to to benefit from a lot of a lot of her knowledge and um i'm certainly um you know someone who personally when i was racing benefited from that as well and i, I kind of think i got a, got on the bandwagon a few years earlier than uh, than a few of the other pros uh, might have done because it you know it does seem like it's more so in the last few years that it's it's kind of taken off again and um you know no doubt it helped me a lot not just with um you know performance but also i think injury prevention and consistency it's always hard to quantify what proportion of improvements you make can be um can be as a direct result of for example your swim bike run training or what what proportion you can say is due to the strength training that you're doing but my personal experience was that regardless of any of that i just found i was able to train much more consistently and without any uh, nearly as many niggles and injuries and setbacks and um that that was only a good thing you know mentally as much as anything and i know many endurance athletes are highly motivated individuals i mean obviously professionals can spend the time maximizing their performance and taking multiple naps but as you probably have to tell many people more people are participating in triathlon and endurance sports as amateurs than professionals. So they've got a limited amount of time. When you've got athletes who come to you, because even though you 
are on the uh, the cusp of the sword, and it is generally accepted by many people. The typical runner who's training for a marathon or amateur athlete who says, hey, I want to do a half Ironman or I want to be Ironman distance. When you say, well, you should do some resistance training, they're going to go, but where do I fit that in? How do you explain to them you can give something up? And how do you, when you're working with them with program design, convince them that, look, this is something that's beneficial as opposed to adding in another run or adding in another bike or another swim? Yeah, that's uh, that's an excellent point. And it's certainly something that comes up with just about every athlete we work with. Um, you know, people often adopt the the more is more um, thought process. And you know, it's not always the case, as we know, you know, it's it's important to train, um, train as sensibly and uh, as smart as, as possible. And I think a well balanced program, it just widely accepted that it really should have a component of strength training within it. And we we just we don't ever in any way try and kind of force that upon athletes. It's really important that you get the buy-in from the athlete, I think, firstly. Um, and, and we certainly come across some athletes and they may be a little more averse to the thought of incorporating strength training. And um, sometimes in those instances, it can take a little more convincing and we might start off a little bit more gradually, for example, just with one shorter strength session a week that doesn't take away um, too much from their, their other endurance training or doesn't cause too much of uh you know a time commitment and then hopefully over time find ourselves able to increase that um that either frequency or duration of strength training um we find that most people find two sessions a week is is feasible and manageable and we certainly don't kind of say every session has to be for example like 60 minutes plus um you can get a very effective strength training done you know within 30 to 40 minutes if if you're you know diligent with with what it is you're doing and um you know focus on a couple of key key exercises so we certainly always want it to be time efficient for athletes you know as you said amateur athletes there's a there's a, a finite amount of training time and we want to optimize and maximize that because it's absolutely essential to do so for, for performance. And people who, who are doing triathlon, as you said, the motivated individuals, and they often have many other, <laughs> other aspects of their life that they need to keep on top of as well. Not, uh, you know, not, uh, not just triathlon. So it's really, really fundamentally important that we keep a good balance within the program and make sure that we're not overstretching athletes, um, by trying to get them to do too much or, uh, an amount of training that's, um, unsustainable for them. One of the very cool things about doing endurance sports, well, it's two very cool things is first of all, you can race on the same course as the professionals. So when you were racing, somebody could be doing their first Ironman or their first half Ironman and race in the same course as you look at your times and either aspire to it. Or if you were like me, realistically say, okay, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to run that time, but I can still enjoy it. Do you find when you work with athletes of different ages, what you recommend either as the amount of resistance training or the exercises that you recommend, do you find it differs across the age span? Whereas what you're doing with say an 18 year old university student versus a 60 year old business executive. Yeah, that's, um, that's a, a good question too. It's obviously always going to be athlete specific and um, Kate with her background is physiotherapist obviously works a little more closely with people um especially with regards to uh, injuries that they may have had um or current injuries as well and and that's the occasion i suppose when it's much more important for athletes to get a program that's a little bit more tailored and individualized to to them and their fundamental needs and requirements uh, we can obviously apply some some broad exercises and sets and rep ranges that work well for the majority of athletes and so that will benefit, no doubt, 
the vast majority. Um, but there's certainly a place, I think, for a little bit more individualized um, work to, to, to occur because whilst everyone can you know benefit from some of the key exercises that we know are going to be really uh, really important to help for example cycling performance like squats or leg press there may be other components that uh, an individual can benefit from that um, may require a little bit more input and understanding from somebody uh, for a strength coach for example to be able to understand that individual's background what their current limitations are um, what their current you know injury history is or isn't and um, and be able to you know plan accordingly uh, and ensure that that individual gets the very best um, out of their strength training. And I know we talked a few minutes ago about endurance athletes being highly motivated. And very often when you start in endurance sports, you kind of have the more, more, more. It's like, oh, I can race every weekend. And if you're in a place, I know when I lived in Florida, the hardest thing was to recognize that you cannot race year round, even though the weather allowed it. How do you approach athletes that you work with who you've got experience, you know, as a athlete, but also as a coach, and maybe they're not quite ready, or maybe they're never ready to do some of these longer distance events. Because as you said, there is the mental component, but there's a big difference between running say 13.1 miles or a marathon after a bike versus a 5k or a 10k in the shorter distances. For sure. Yeah. It's, um, I think firstly, it's really important to be open and honest in the relationship between athlete and coach and for both parties to feel that they can express their viewpoints, um, openly without, um, without having any hesitations or reservations. So, um, I always think, um, as an athlete, whenever I was coached, I would really value the reason I had a coach was obviously to benefit from their expertise and to have them on board and um, to be part of my team and to help and assist. And so I think it's really important then that the coach has the ability to to be frank and upfront with their athletes. And sometimes there are more challenging conversations where you need to, for example, say to an athlete, okay, I love that you've got this plan and this is the race you want to do. Perhaps we should work to a timeline, for example, that might be a little bit more appropriate for you to um, to look at some of these races that you have planned. Um, as you said, lots of people want to do everything and want to do it quite quickly. Um, and whilst on occasions that can work, it's definitely important to you know have have a balance and to have um, have a layout that works for not just one season, but obviously longer term. You know, we we certainly with the athletes we work with, we want them to be able to enjoy the sport for the long term and not have a short-term approach where we look at you know just over racing over training individuals and um risk burnout or demotivation along the way because uh, you know as as endurance athletes we probably all experience that on some level at one point um, or another and it, it's a tough place to be and we certainly don't want to inflict that in on athletes in any way so i think as as a coach in um, in any field it's really really important that you uh, have the ability to be open with your athletes and to express your, you know, your opinion and viewpoints, obviously in a manner that that will will go down well with the athlete. And that's, um, I suppose, one of the more challenging aspects sometimes is knowing each athlete individually and, you know, understanding the approach that might work best with that individual versus another because that's another component of coaching that that's fundamentally very important and um and isn't often talked about and isn't really something you necessarily learn about as well it's um it's one of those things dealing with with individuals that um that is um a challenge for sure but also something that i think um is very rewarding when you you get to know people on on a deeper level and um you know really start to create a great relationship with them as, a, as an athlete and as a coach. And um, yeah, it's, it's a really, really special bond, actually. 
I am horrible with names, so I apologize in advance, but we interviewed uh, two gentlemen from the UK, uh, both retired rugby players who do a lot of shoulder programming with athletes. And one of them said, said something that stuck with me. He said, whether you recognize it or not, if you're a coach and you're working with athletes, you have a responsibility to leave them better than they started with. And it sounds like you have a similar attitude where you want them to have a good experience. And you mentioned you don't want them to have a one season. Boy, that was great. And never again do I want to see my bike or a swimming pool. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, I always say to people, tri triathlon, it's a really, really hard sport. You know, as, as an athlete, you give up so much. There's, there's the training time, there's the expense, there's the opportunity cost of all the other things that you could be doing with your, with your time as well. And I think it's, it would, it's just such a shame to, to think that athletes might not enjoy not just the journey, but also the end result, you know, being the race. And so it's so, so important that we as, as coaches do everything possible to, to make that journey enjoyable and, and safe and, uh, and progressive and, and make sure that we're, we're looking after the athletes, obviously. And you get some athletes and they are certainly easier to coach than others or more coachable for want of a better word. Um, and, um, there's no doubt challenges along the way. And sometimes it's, um, it's, difficult with some athletes sometimes to um to always get them to i suppose buy into to the ideas and concepts that you may have and, and that's you know what that's that's absolutely fine because ultimately i always say you know the athlete is in charge they're the one who's in charge of their uh, their journey and their destiny and you know we're just there to to help along the way hopefully um but um it's yeah it, it can be can be difficult at times so you work as a coach now, thinking back to when you first started doing triathlons. Two-part question. First, when did you get your first coach? And second, how did you transition into not only racing, but also coaching other athletes? Yeah, my my first coach was um, an American coach over in Tucson called Brian Stover. Um, and he's uh, he's Accelerate 3, um, which some of your listeners may have, may have heard of. And I'm going to have to think back to what year I started working with Brian. I think it might have been around 2011 or 2012, perhaps. And um, he, I suppose, really had a, probably a, quite a profound effect on my, uh, not just my journey as a triathlete, but also on my my ideas as a coach as well. And um, yeah, I hope he listens to this and, and feels really positive about that, obviously, um, because my, my experience with Brian was, was absolutely fantastic. I think we worked together for, for maybe about three to four years, perhaps. And, um, you know, perhaps that's not the longest term relationship, but certainly even at the time when when we we parted ways, there was, it was nothing but 100% mutual respect and and uh and an amicable separation and um yeah my relationship with Brian was absolutely fantastic and his knowledge and understanding and background was was everything that I needed as an athlete at the time he took me from being a, you know an okay amateur to being a very competitive amateur and um I had a 70.3 age group world championship win with Brian he actually led me to my my Ironman PB time, which was eight eighteen at the time, and um, he really set me on on a path to give me the opportunity to springboard my my triathlon career, which which may well not have happened had it not been for him. So um, it's it, yeah, that's a good example, I suppose, of how maybe you don't realize it as a time when you're coaching people, but your impact on somebody can be so much more than than just the here and now and you can have a future impact on on that individual and i suppose that really um emphasizes the importance of the relationship really i know talking to some people who 
jump into the profession, whether it's personal training or coaching, there's the got to have clients, got to have athletes. And if an athlete or a client leaves, they take it personally. And it sounds like your experience with Brian was exactly the opposite. If you can think back to your relationship with you and him, what was it that made that you could both say, okay, this is served its course. We, we need to part ways, but we're still, you know, somebody that if we, if we see at a race, we're going to have a pleasant conversation and have fond memories versus boy, that guy was a real jerk. He used me and then, he, <laughs> and then he dumped me. Oh, no, for sure. It's, um, it, it was just, I suppose in hindsight, all, all, all on Brian, because I think when you have a situation where you have an athlete and a coach and they go their separate ways, fair to say or assume that the majority of the time it's probably the athlete instigating that um that separation and and it was the case when when brian and i were working together and i was just in a position where i wanted to see what was on the other side of the fence i suppose and um that was my, that was part of my journey at the time and i explained that to brian and he couldn't possibly have taken it any better than than he did and he was uh obviously firstly really respectful of my decision um and actually went as far as to you know say to me look if you'd like some suggestions for other coaches you can reach out to who i think would be you know maybe like well suited to you at, the, at this stage in your career then please let me know and we're happy to you know help and else in any way possible and even that as a as a gesture i think you you realize how how rare that is um when when you have a passing ways um and yeah we we had an absolutely fantastic relationship not during our athlete coach um relationship but also afterwards um and actually funnily enough i, I still approach brian you know in in the years following um following him coaching me and ask for his input and ask for his feedback because he was always someone that i still uh very much respected and um and looked up to and um valued his opinion on on training and racing um so i think there's certainly as you said plenty plenty of instances where we hear the exact opposite of that. I think uh, whether you recognize it or not, Brian also had an influence on your coaching career because you mentioned before we talked about Brian, the fact that it's the athlete's journey. And from what you've described of your relationship with him, he understood that it was your journey and he was helping you along. What was it about it or when did you decide, I want to do some coaching also in addition to racing? And what was the impetus behind that? Yeah, um, I think that it's quite natural, I suppose, for lots of uh, lots of professional athletes to find themselves going into into coaching. I suppose it's a natural progression um, for for many athletes. Certainly not for not for everybody. And I first probably dipped my toes into it just just working probably a bit more closely with um, with some close friends, probably on a very casual basis, um, and certainly not what I would necessarily specify as you know individualized coaching or anything along those lines but just i suppose sharing experiences and giving advice and giving feedback on sessions and giving input on future sessions and that probably would have been it was certainly six plus years ago i think now and um, i suppose from there things just gradually progress a little bit more and you as an athlete start to speak with other athletes and your peers and other people around the sport and um you know you you take you're a product of all your experiences and all the people that you meet along the way and for me triathlon was something that i was so so heavily involved in obviously not just as an athlete but also something that within my free time was so important to me to be able to still um have the opportunity to work with athletes was something that i really really wanted to pursue and um it was as i said for me a very natural progression um i'm certainly somebody who who enjoys working with people on an individual basis as well and being able to um have 
have inputs and to be able to hopefully help other people on on their journey is something that that's hugely rewarding and um yeah something that's that i certainly value because it's a, a really big commitment on the athlete's part to put their trust and faith in in any one individual to to help them on you know achieve their goals and objectives within the sport and it's um it's certainly something that i think as a, as a coach that you should be appreciative of and uh, and i try to yeah try to remember that I know every coach is different. And I think what's interesting for listeners, or maybe some people are looking for coaches, what does a coach athlete relationship look like with you? Like, how does an athlete find you? And how do you decide this is an athlete I want to work with versus this is an athlete that maybe somebody else is better suited to it for whatever reason? And then how does the relationship work? Yeah. So um, in my personal experience, I um, actually operate pretty much mostly through word of mouth and personal recommendations. So that to me has been a very, for want of a better word, organic way of um, of gathering um, athletes and gathering interest in, in coaching. And obviously working here at Endurance Movement um, in Perth is uh, a great way for us to meet athletes and to be surrounded by athletes on a daily basis and inevitably you strike up conversations with people and um you know they may ask you questions about your coaching style and coaching philosophy and ultimately i think if i was to describe myself as a as a personality i would certainly hope that uh, i would, would be considered a pretty laid back and an approachable individual um i i say to people who you know get in touch with me occasionally if you need a coach who's going to be a real motivator somebody who's going to be you know be on you chasing you up for every single session that's probably not me and there's probably other people out there who are going to be far better suited to you but in my experience as we said earlier that triathletes is a demographic they're, they're very motivated individuals and i haven't found that there's too many athletes who actually need that that kind of hurry up um regularly and um so in my experience that hasn't really been been too much of a sticking point but i i certainly value working with athletes of all different backgrounds and at all different levels and one of the things that i really personally enjoy is working with athletes at different uh different ages and different levels and not necessarily being confined to working with a certain demographic of athlete or a, for example only the more competitive athletes or any middle of the pack athletes or only beginning athletes um i think it's really nice to be able to have that variation with within the athletes that you work with and and i think help keeps you on your toes a little bit more um as a coach and you know keeps keeps things a little bit more interesting too so you're not the coach to yell at the athlete or discourage the athlete from missing a workout do you think that comes just from your overall uh, outlook on life or does this come back from the experience racing longer distance races where you really can't get too up or too down because it's a long day and you recognize that, hey, you're probably going to have times where you feel absolutely the worst that you get feel in your life and times at the best. So there's no, no sense in getting overly excited. Yeah, I think, uh, I guess primarily I would say it's probably a personality trait and the second part of that is probably as you said your personality i think shines through in in the way you race and um generally speaking i would say i was quite good at maintaining a, a, an even uh, temperament during racing as you said especially long distances you go through so many ups and downs it's important not to get too excited when things are going well but also important try not to get um trying to not to get too hard on yourself when things are tough 
Um, I think that that as an individual, I'm quite uh, neutral, my wife would say, uh, to never get too excited about things. Um, but neither would I get, you know, too down in the dumps or, uh, you know, too too disappointed or despondent when things are going, um, you know, going a bit more difficultly as well. So I think that uh, that can be a benefit when it comes to to racing uh, over the longer distances. Um, there's certainly no doubt going to be times when actually it could be could be a downside and you actually need to have a little bit more maybe just a little bit more flair and uh an instant passion or whatever the the terminology might be but uh i think as a as a generalization uh i think it suited me well for for long distance racing and at least uh allowed me to to race quite quite evenly um i think in my personal opinion you look at the guys at the top and i i, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily um one of their traits i think that you've got to you've got to have a little bit more to you than than that i think and the the people that, who are at the top of uh, of their game i think have that that little bit extra within their the personality that shines through in in the racing and um and ultimately that's i think what's probably going to be required to be the very best we're talking with Nick Baldwin. He is an endurance coach and also a triathlete. We were chatting a little bit prior to recording about the effects that COVID has had on your career. And I know you mentioned uh, one of the reasons we delayed the interview from a few months back is you had COVID and you were, if I remember correctly, preparing for a race. Physiologically, how did that happen? How did that affect your training and how long did it go on? Because I know everybody's different. And I think given the information out there for somebody who actually works at a very high level for people to hear this is how it affected me understanding that you're an n of one can be very interesting and perhaps help some people recognize hey i'm not alone there's other people in the same situation yes so um i was preparing for gold coast marathon at the time and i, I think my wife and i got covid perhaps 12 or 13 days out from from race day and when we tested positive we obviously were initially thoughts went to the race and the race day and okay what do we do now and we had to make a bit of a quick decision obviously with regards to the, the logistics of changing and cancelling things but it was quite an easy decision for us at the time just to play it safe i suppose and say look let's just step away from this event and not even consider the the possibility or option of flying over and trying to race um having seen so many other athletes go through their experience with covid we were actually probably quite delayed um in getting getting covid in the first place um but i suppose we had the benefit of having seen how other people had managed with their experiences and the tricky thing was that it was really hard to apply one broad rule or principle that would work well for every athlete it was very much a, a case by case basis but as a generalization there weren't too many athlete experiences where they were able to firstly get over covid um, quickly without any any symptoms but secondly actually return to a high level of training and performance relatively quickly as well so with that in mind the odds certainly weren't in, in our favor to to be able to um turn things around within two weeks and then try and race uh race a marathon you know as as well as possible so in hindsight it was a pretty easy decision to uh, to pull the plug on that race but obviously at the time hugely disappointing i think i put in uh, six plus months of preparation specifically for that event and um had at the time turned my attention to running um more so than than triathlon and um the return post covid actually for me first time around was was fairly good i i think i was quite lucky i would certainly consider myself to be amongst the the more fortunate group of athletes who didn't have any longer term 
symptoms firstly of covid but also actually found that my return to fitness seemed to come come quite easily and um i think i in hindsight yeah was was very lucky with that and i was able to find another marathon i think within um within three months and and line up for that and i i never never really managed to return to the the training level that i had previously unfortunately but I, I got round. I got my race in, which, which was something, and and I was uh, I was pleased still to be able to find an event, um, which was lucky. But uh, I actually recently had COVID a second time around, and I actually think that my, whilst my symptoms at the time were far better than first time, the return after the second time has been a lot harder. Um, and again, it's we we haven't dealt with so many athletes who have uh, recovered from COVID a second time and experienced their their different um experiences in the return post covid second time around but yeah my experience so far has been a little bit more challenging so certainly something that you know i'm just continuing to to play by ear and kind of see how how things go on a daily basis really i'm curious shifting gears a little bit from that we've uh, I read your bio and we've chatted a little bit when you work at the higher level athletes and we mentioned a little bit about you have the highest of highs and the lowest of lows so it's not just the physical training, but it's the athlete who has the mental, I don't know what the correct term is, knowledge, uh, background, confidence to understand that, hey, you know, I may feel like crap now, but two miles down the road, I may feel better. How do you integrate uh, mental training in with the athletes that you work with, uh, especially given that some of them are probably these high-powered people who are used to being go, go, go and having having somebody say maybe hey step back or relax or don't think about this it'll get better because the the uh, the mental aspect of endurance sports is so important and not really talked about as much as put in more mileage put in faster mileage train more it is i i think first it's important to acknowledge uh with the athlete prior to to race day that the feelings and emotions that they will go through are totally normal and are part and parcel of of long distance racing and allow them to understand that they will go through inevitably like as you said lows they will go through inevitably highs where things are fantastic and there's a whole spectrum of emotions along uh, along the way when you're racing long distances and understanding that that's part of the process i think is important rather than for example the athlete turning up to their first long distance race and then thinking at the time oh my goodness what i didn't expect to be feeling like this this is um you know a, a real surprise i think if the athlete understands prior to to race day that they're going to go through some of these changes in emotions and there'll be times where they feel that there's no way out and that and the race has all gone uh, gone downhill and um and there's no return and also understand that on the flip side of that there'll be times where they're feeling so positive the rate they will feel like everything's clicking everything's going absolutely perfectly and then things can just snap and change the the variation is huge and, and I, as i said earlier it's a kind of a component of racing that i really enjoyed was a mental aspect um it's certainly not an area that i claim in any way to kind of have any uh any expertise in um as an athlete myself i actually um spent a bit of time with a sports psychologist and for me it was a really eye-opening experience to to have an expert in that field essentially teach you some um some principles that you can apply to your to your training and racing and help to try and understand you as an individual and help to understand what makes you click and to help you realize that as well and then to try and help you apply those um you know those ideas and uh, and tips and tricks to be able to get the most out of yourself on race day and certainly 
any athlete who I think is thinking, look, I think this is a component of my of my training and my racing that could be improved upon, I'd encourage them to um, to consider a sports psychologist because for me it was an extremely positive experience. And I certainly wouldn't say to athletes that it's something that's reserved for only the professionals or only the elite because ultimately it's a huge component of the sport, as we said, and it's something that people can benefit from hugely as well. So in many ways, it's no different to seeking the advice of a sports nutritionist or seeking the advice of a coach or a strength coach or going to see a medical professional when you need that assistance. Um, it's just another component of of your your training and racing performance and probably one that's not um, not implemented as much as some of the others, but one that no doubt can be hugely beneficial for people. And we've talked about the high driving, very motivated athletes. How do you approach the rest and recovery is sometimes important. I know I was reading in your bio, that's one of the things that you value the most. And I recall the story when I was in grad school, we had an injury clinic and there was a fairly good amateur triathlete in the area who came in and he was saying, well, you know, my, my 400s in the pool, they, they were down, they were down by 30 seconds. And when I was running on the track, my legs hurt and, you know, I couldn't make my normal times. And I said, Brian, why don't you take a day off? And his response was, I took a day off last month and he was dead serious. <laughs> so you get athletes like this, they have a good training session or they, they see what, uh, unfortunately what other athletes do or they read on the internet which it, what, what the athletes best workout is not the three workouts that they trashed how do you emphasize the importance of recovery and saying hey if you don't do this run or maybe you don't do this race you're going to be better for this next race or your training is going to be better for the next three months this is without doubt probably the most um the most common thing that we come across with athletes is actually encouraging them to to take more rest and recovery and sometimes to do less rather than to do more um as you said so often the athletes are so motivated and buy into the principle that more is more all the time and um taking rest and recovery is uh, perhaps a sign of lack of motivation or a sign of weakness whereas quite the opposite it's actually as we all know is fundamental to to performance and getting the athlete i think firstly to to buy into that and to understand that is is i think the first step and then encouraging the athlete to to take their rest appropriately is obviously key i in my experience it doesn't take too long for athletes to to realize when you're analyzing their training sessions the importance of rest and the benefit that adequate rest and recovery can have on their on their performances and similarly i think you can track quite quickly in training the impact that a lack of rest and recovery has and as you said you can see over time that motivation starts to uh starts starts to lower and your metrics in training might start to worsen or drop off as well and that often correlates with uh, you know poor rest less sleep inadequate recovery and once the athlete has that first-hand experience then i find it's a lot easier for them to start to implement some of the the recommendations that we have in terms of rest but um i always as an athlete personally found that rest was something that to me came quite naturally and that i i really appreciated the opportunities to rest when when it was in my schedule and i have found having trained obviously with many different athletes around the world and uh, had lots of different training partners that that's actually not a trait that everyone necessarily has and for some people taking rest actually is is just quite a hard thing to do um and so it's important to try and as we said educate and enable the athlete to understand the importance i think for for them to truly truly realize um the benefits that that rest will have 
The fun thing about endurance sports and especially uh, triathlons is the wealth of technology, tools, and toys. What do you use with your athletes, if anything, for tracking? Heart rate monitors, power meters, et cetera, or does it depend on what the athlete has? I would say it's largely athlete dependent. Um, we certainly get a range of athletes and therefore a range of different desires to use technology. We have some athletes who are tech averse and might not uh, want anything more than a basic GPS watch uh, and a heart rate monitor and other athletes who you know, want to make use of all of the, the latest technology and implement as many um, of the you know, technological advancements that we have. Um, and ultimately, that's that's all well and good. I certainly think personally, that one of the most important things is to still get that subjective feedback from athletes, regardless of the technology that you're using. And I think that that's something that can certainly be be overlooked and lost within the amount of metrics that we have available to track, simply checking in with the athletes and actually asking them how they're going, asking them how they're feeling, if possible, with athletes that you're working with in person, being able to actually see them, um, see their body language, see their movement, and understand physically how they're going maybe not even by necessarily asking them anything but just by looking at at uh at them in training i think can can often be be quite insightful um the technology can be great it can also be at times i think difficult to to sift through it all and to prioritize what what metric you're going to you know pay most attention to today um as an athlete i'm i'm certainly um biased in that i wasn't necessarily super into all of the technology that that was available i loved making use of like for example power meter and pace on the run um and obviously speed in the pool and and that was probably about it for me um and and that certainly has translated to my viewpoint on coaching without doubt and so as with everything there's other coaches out there who will be certainly much more uh, up to date with using absolutely all of the latest technology and making sure that um that all the metrics that are understood are then implemented and applied uh, and then you'll get others on the opposite side who are even more tech averse than i am and and might not necessarily want to pay too much attention to anything more than heart rate um but ultimately within all of that i think the subjective athlete feedback is is absolutely critical and it's one of the most honest honest ways i think of measuring how an athlete is going as well and um i think is yeah really important not to overlook one of the things i often say is the great thing about the internet is there's so much information out there the bad thing about the internet is there's so much information out there you've got an advantage uh with your experience and with your wife's experience that you can look at a lot of things and bounce ideas off of her and find out is this legit information is this something that i can use for athletes who are listening to this or young professionals who maybe don't have the networking that you have, what are one or two pieces of advice you can give them where they can sift the, I hesitate to say wealth of information, the, the vast amount of information to figure out, you know, this is the good information, this is the bad information, you know, I want to follow posts on Instagram by, you know, endurance movement, I don't want to follow, follow by XYZ because the information is either not current or inaccurate. Absolutely. As you said, there's certainly no shortage of information out there and it can be difficult to know when you're seeing contrasting viewpoints and contrasting information to, to know which one is correct or who you should be paying attention to, who's right, who's wrong. Um, I don't necessarily think it's always as, as simple and as cut and dried as um, one individual or one group of individuals having a, a wrong opinion and the others being being correct. There's, as with with many things, different ways and different approaches to go about uh, about the same thing. But ultimately, I think 
as an athlete, I think one of the most important things is that you maybe choose your team around you or try and have a smaller group of people that you have on board and I suppose implement their thoughts and ideas. Because ultimately, when you have too many people, um, what's this saying? Too many cooks spoil the broth. It's It can be too too contrasting, I think, when you've got lots of different viewpoints and opinions being fired at you. And then it becomes more tricky to to take it all on board and to to try and apply what you think is the best uh, the best course of action. Whereas I think if you've got a smaller team that you're working with and um, you're taking fewer opinions on board, but you are 100% invested in the people you have around you, then that is, I think, as an athlete, the most important thing, because then you have the confidence that what you're doing is correct. You're not listening to the noise that's around you. And you then give the avenue that you're taking 100% focus and, and commitment. And, and I think that's probably one of the most important ways to go about it. Great information from Nick Baldwin. He is an endurance coach and a triathlete. We will have links to his social media where you can get information. Nick, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. It's always nice to hear from high-level athletes who've transitioned into coaching and people who understand that, to kind of uh, paraphrase what you said, there's more than one way to cook the broth. No, thanks, Ben. It's uh, yeah, great to chat with you, and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to, to be on the show. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live wherever you find podcasts or on our website, www.movingtolive.com. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live and check out our movement tip and lifestyle hack videos that we produce three times a week, along with our once-weekly video Labrador lessons, because we can all learn from the dogs. All of these are ways to promote the idea that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Until next time, keep on moving.